If you have your Bibles, turn to Matthew chapter 6. And we're going to be looking at Matthew chapter 6, verses, well, 5 through 13 is the text. We're going to read a portion of that uh, in a moment. And just so you know, for those of you who like to plan ahead, I'm going to ask somebody to read um, Matthew 6, 5 through 8 in a moment. Um, So if that's you and you know it, get ready. Um, We're wrapping up a series on the Lord's Prayer. It's funny, I was thinking about this this week. My first two sermons at Midtown on staff both conclude series that have been going on for a long time. So so I begin by concluding the Lord's Prayer, and then two weeks from now I'm going to conclude the Colossians series as well. So, so I guess that makes me a closer. Um, but uh, we're, we're unpacking this, this, this prayer that Jesus has given for us and that he's modeled for us. And we come now to the last line, which is probably in this prayer, one of the most familiar lines of the prayer, if not one of the more familiar lines in the Bible for anybody who's, who's grown up where the Bible is discussed. Whether you grew up in a Christian home or not, whether you grew up with Scripture, you heard at some point in your life, lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. The temptation with a familiar text like this is to presume that we already kind of know what it means and to go into the gear of this is the part in the prayer where Jesus says, watch it, watch what you do. Modify your behavior Manage your sin. This is the important last step in talking to God. As if Jesus is saying, just as your closing prayer, remember to pray that God would help you behave. But it runs so much deeper than that. If we're listening to this prayer through the lens of, okay, God, help me just manage sin, behavior modification, just work on that with me, we're going to fail to go to the depth that Jesus is really calling us to here. This is not just about stopping certain behaviors and starting other behaviors, but it's about getting to the core of why we do the things that we do that run our lives aground. And to paint a picture for, for you so that we're not just thinking about, okay, I have this big temptation in my life and I need to stop doing this thing. Let me ask you to hear this prayer and this line in the prayer, perhaps in a new way, through the filter of of understanding that nobody in this room, nobody in this city, nobody on this planet has a simple story. Everybody has a story, and they're, they're complex, they're complicated, they're filled with nuance, things that have happened. I have a friend who I was in a, uh, a fellowship group with, um, and we were taking turns telling our life stories. It was an exercise in getting to know each other. And when it came to be his turn, you know, we had this, we had this uh, exercise we called the EKG of your life, you know, where EKGs are this up and down line, and, you know, chart your high points and your low points, and the things in your life that, that sort of have defined uh, who, you, who you've become. When he was three years old, he had a brother who was one, and uh, the brother, the one-year-old brother was in his crib crying, and he wanted his brother to stop crying, and so he went in as a three-year-old to try to figure out how to get his brother to stop crying. And what he did, I won't tell you what he did, but what he did almost killed his brother. And his parents, it's one of those things where the parents came in just in the nick of time, saw what he was doing, stopped, cleaned up his brother, and uh, rescued him. He was telling us this story to say, then what my mom and dad did is they, they put a lock on my bedroom door. 
And whenever I would go into my room, they'd, they'd uh, lock me in. And then he said, and they did that till I was 13. That's a decade of your parents locking you in your room every night to keep little brother safe. Lead us not into temptation and deliver us from evil. What if your story is like that? You, you know your story. You know the things that you come from. And you say, Lord, the things that have happened in my life, the things that have shaped me, the things that have caused me to believe, I'm, I'm not worthy of friendship. I'm not to be trusted. I'm kind of a liability in any situation that I'm in. When Jesus says, lead me not into temptation, deliver me from evil, it's not just bad behavior, but it's the root of that kind of stuff. Deliver me from that, God, where I am where I see myself as, as, as caustic, as dangerous, as an unworthy person to know. Deliver me from the stuff, the thoughts that come into my head about who I am in relationship to my, my own family, my relationships with my friends, my work, what I deserve in life. Deliver me from those sorts of things. Philo of Alexandria said, be kind, because everybody you meet is fighting a great battle. We're digging deep into a line of prayer that zeroes in, not just on the stuff that we do, but why. Why we do it. Deliver me from evil. Don't just break the pattern of the evil acts, but deliver me from it. Deliver me from it. Perhaps... You hear this, and you think, this is Jesus just saying, pray for God to help you get it together. But I think, I think in this line of prayer, Jesus is inviting us to something that is sweet, something that is drenched in the hope of the gospel that Jesus himself perfected. It's what David prayed in Psalm 139 when he said, Search me, O God, and know me. Know my heart. Try me. Know my thoughts. See if there's any grievous way in me. And lead me in the way everlasting. That's what's at the heart of deliver us from evil, is lead me in your ways. Now, you're familiar with the prayer, but I want us to take a second to read the verses before, how Jesus sets the prayer up, so we can see the heart behind what Jesus is modeling. So, so, Whoever's ready with, with Matthew 6, verses 5 through 8, I want to ask you to stand and, 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 and read it so we can hear it. Who's it going to be? Today is the first Sunday I'll ask this, but it is not the last. And so if you want to take your turn now, this is a good time. Randy's taught me all about awkward silence. So, All right, Matthew 6, 5 through 8. Amen. Thank you. When we come to this prayer, 
that is familiar. Jesus gives it a context. He's giving these words as a model for how to pray. And what he does in, the very, in those words that, that, that Kendall just wrote, read is, is that he reminds us that God isn't one who is looking for the most eloquent and the most refined prayer. He's saying, don't, don't worry about the people who stand on the street corners in public and pray these lavish, eloquent prayers. That's not the point. And then he goes on to say, he's not deaf or distant or sleeping either. He says, you don't have to pray like the pagans who just keep repeating phrases over and over and over again as sort of a distress signal, hoping that God has his receptors out at some point during that prayer and that he hears you just a little bit. Jesus is telling you, God sees you. He knows you. He knows what you need. He loves you as a father and as a father is supposed to love his own, as a perfect father. And we know that since Jesus warned against heaping up empty phrases, that the prayer then that he gives us to pray, there's no wasted words in this. These are not empty phrases. There's no filler in Jesus' prayer. It's, it's, it's something that he's calling us to do, and he's saying this matters. Every clause, every phrase of this prayer is helpful to you. What does it matter for? Some might conclude that it matters that we follow Jesus' model of prayer because what Jesus is kind of telling us is God is an authoritarian who's out there who's kind of particular and specific and if you don't pray to him in a particular way he's going to be offended and he's not going to listen or he's not going to do what it is that you want but that's not the Bible's understanding of prayer prayer is communication and communication is relational and so when Jesus is modeling for us how to pray He's talking about the forging and the cultivation of a relationship with God. He's talking about talking to God and listening to God speak to us. It isn't just that if we play our cards right, God might care as we float our prayers up and hope that they make it past the ceiling. It's, it's that when we look at where this prayer leads, we see Jesus saying, God is not distant. You're not trying to coax anything out of him, but this leads you someplace. This leads you to a prayer that helps you understand who he is and who you are in relationship to him better. I want to quickly review the prayer in its entirety. It's broken into two halves, kind of right down the middle. The first half, Jesus is focused on God. The preeminence of God over everything, who he is, how to address him. In the words, our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name, Jesus opens by showing us how to address him. He is on the one hand, Father, and he is on the other hand, holy. And so we are to address him as children with affection and with respect. But that's part of how we address God. And then he says, your kingdom come. Jesus is directing our hearts to consider the brokenness of the world that we live in and to long for everything that is broken to be put right. Then we say, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Jesus is guiding us here in a prayer of yielding. And yielding is something that we can't do without asking God to expose the conflicts between my will and his will. I want your will to be done. And when we're asking for God's will to be done, we're praying that his will will overrule ours when they're in conflict. So we're yielding to the preeminence, to the authority, to the power, to the godness of God in the first half of this prayer. And then we move into the second half, which is the petitions, the things that we're asking God for. 
And only then does Jesus move in. Once we've established who God is, then we begin to ask. And I love how comprehensive Jesus is in this prayer. He starts with physical needs. Ask God to provide for your physical needs, for your daily bread. It is right, it's appropriate for you to ask God to provide these things for you. And then when we ask God to meet our physical needs, we pray that the Lord would also preserve our relational health with one another. Forgive us our debts as we forgive our debtors. What we're asking for there is for healthy fellowship. And in the very same breath of asking God for healthy fellowship, we're asking for restoration when our relationships get broken. We're saying, God, forgive me. And give me the grace to forgive others. We're saying we want healthy relationships. And if our relationships aren't soaked in forgiveness, then, friends, they don't stand a chance. All right? Let's just take me as an example, okay? Um... You don't know me. We're getting to know each other. I've had great opportunities of spending time uh, with some of you getting to know your stories and you getting to know mine. So far, I don't think I've really upset anybody here yet. <laughs> but if we walk through life together, if we worship together, if we struggle together, I will. I will upset you. And sometimes it'll be your fault. Sometimes it'll be just squarely on me. Most of the time it'll be that cocktail of the both of us together, me being clueless. You know, it's going to happen. Why is it going to happen? Because all of us, we have an incredible capacity to hurt each other. It's just in us. We have an incredible capacity to do serious damage. And if it's not constantly on our lips, forgive us as we forgive others. What are we doing? We're, we're in a little window of time that's going to get broken. So we pray for the preservation of our relational health. So we pray for God to meet our daily needs. We pray for him to preserve relational health, for forgiveness, and for the grace to forgive. If this is where Jesus stopped, though, it would be basically pop psychology. It would be Jesus saying, all right, here's what you do. You pray for your daily needs. You pray for forgiveness. And when relationships get broken, you just need to be a big enough person to say, it's all good, don't worry about it. Jesus knows it's not all good. It's not all good. Because it's not just that I might offend you or that I might upset you or that I might hurt you. But it's that when I do, there will be a reason. There will be a reason that will crop up again and again. Same with you, a motive. And a lot of times it'll be insidious. It'll be selfish. It'll be prideful. It'll be something that just is down in there deep and it's not all good. We need more than just the capacity to forgive. We need to be rescued from that stuff that's deep in our hearts, that's devoted to leveling every good thing in our lives to the ground. The Bible calls this the problem of sin, that it's in you, it's in me. And so Jesus closes with this, lead us not into temptation, but deliver us 
deliver us from evil. Act in that part of who I am. Forgive us as we forgive our debtors, logically leads into, then doesn't it, lead us not into temptation. A pastor friend of mine, Dan Doriani, said, the man or woman who is free from the guilt of sin, the forgiveness, uh, also wants relief from its tyranny. So I don't just want the corruption in me forgiven, but I want its power over me broken. And that's what we're moving into in this last part, is not just forgive me, but root out what's there, what's, what's, what's causing me to behave the way that I do. And so we pray, lead me not into temptation. On the surface, it may sound strange to say to God, lead me not into temptation, as if God occasionally leads people into temptation. And Scripture's clear that, that that's not what God does. James 1.13 says this, Let no one say when he is tempted that I'm being tempted by God, for God cannot be tempted with evil, and he himself tempts no one. But here's the thing. He does test us. He does put us through trials. And it's not so that he can stand back and look at us and see what we're made of and make an evaluation or an assessment of us. He already knows that. It's so that we might see that. It's so that he might shine the light so that I can know what drives me, so that I can see my habits, so that he can reveal that to me, so that I might understand where I'm coming from. I need God to show me this. And so when we pray, deliver us from evil, it's not deliver me from testing, but it's deliver me from succumbing to evil when I'm being tested. Protect me from that. And you may say, well, why doesn't God just do, do away with trials and, and testing altogether if that's when we're particularly tempted? And I think, I mean, I, this could be, be me just being simple, but I think that that answer is pretty self-evident. Uh, if we just said, all right, look at your life and look at the most important lessons that you've ever learned. How many of them came without struggle? The Lord uses these things. He uses these things. Jesus gives this great graphic statement when he's talking about struggle. He says, unless a grain of wheat falls to the earth and dies, it remains alone. But if it dies, it bears much fruit. That's a great picture, isn't it? Saying your struggle is useful. It's, it's, it's good for you. It brings something. So he isn't teaching us to just pray against struggle. He's teaching us to pray that our struggles would bring healing and growth instead of brokenness and ruin. So this prayer is about what we follow after. It's what drives us, what motivates us. It's more than behavior modification. In fact, the positive counterpart to the negative, lead me not into temptation, the positive counterpart to that is what David prayed, lead me in your ways. Lead me in the way everlasting. That's what it is that we're asking. And then Jesus ends with the dramatic, deliver us from evil. This is a dramatic phrase, deliver us. It's rescue. He's saying, rescue me, snatch me up, save me. We're asking God to rescue us from evil. That's what Jesus tells us to pray. He uses the word evil. I noticed on our, on our PowerPoint here, um, I'm not sure if we were using NIV or, or, or what, but it translates deliver us from the evil one, right? Did you notice that? In the ESV, it's deliver us from evil. It's unclear which Jesus is referring to. Both work and neither contradict each other. 
Um, either Jesus is talking about the influence of evil and sin in the world, or he's talking specifically about the devil. I don't, I don't know what you believe about the devil, but I'll tell you this. Jesus spoke about the devil, the existence of the devil, the influence, the cunning of the devil more than anyone else in Scripture. So either way we take it, the influence of evil or the evil one is appropriate since one, you do have an enemy, according to Jesus, who hates you more than you could possibly imagine and wants nothing more than to see your life in ruin. But two, you also have enough brokenness in your own heart to initiate a world of hurt without anybody else's help. So deliver me from evil, rescue me. Rescue me from the evil one, and from the junk inside my own heart. It's why when we find this prayer for deliverance from evil in Scripture, we also find other places in Scripture where the Lord tells us, flee from evil. Just run from it. Run away. And these two things go together. They're closely related. Part of being delivered from temptation comes through a thoughtful interrogation of our own hearts into how we approach temptation in the first place. Think about it. Iris Murdoch made this statement, at the crucial moments of decision, most of the business of choosing is already over. Is that true? At the crucial moments of decision, most of the business of choosing is already over. When are you most likely to give in, to surrender, to certain habits that you know don't bring out the best in you. Do, do you understand your own process there? That's the question I'm asking. Do you understand the process of how you enter into and succumb to temptation or to evil? Have you thought about that? Twelve-steppers. I'd ask if there's any twelve-steppers in the room, but I'm not going to. Twelve-steppers, they have this anagram called halt. Hungry, angry, lonely, tired. They're watch phrases, Right? If you're an addict, if you're hungry, if you're angry, if you're lonely, if you're tired, those are times when you need to be really careful because you're going to be most susceptible to temptation. Do we understand those processes in our own hearts? I think it's important. I think it's important for us to think about that. When we ask God to rescue us, deliver me. It's a prayer of faith. It's a prayer of believing God can do this. God has the power to intervene, to deliver me. So it's not a prayer prayed in vain. And sometimes what God does is he will supernaturally swoop in and intervene and he will step into your life and he will deliver you in a way that will just be inexplicable. Sometimes he will give you a premonition. You'll be going into a situation and you'll just think, mm, something is not right and you will bail out and you will have no idea what you've been delivered from. Just that God did something there. He put an unsettling in my heart over this. Sometimes God will do this, but most of the time, God's rescue in your life and in mine is exceedingly ordinary. And that's what I want to close with. What is the rescue that God sends? I want to point out three. The first is he gives us his word revelation of who he is and who we are. His word is filled 
with descriptions of how we relate to him, how we relate to one another. It gives us counsel. It gives us moral direction. It gives us spiritual insight. It puts boundaries around our lives. It speaks to the things that you struggle with, the things at the heart of your struggle. God's word is there and it's speaking to us. Deliver me from evil. God, give me eyes to see what your word says about my struggle and give me the grace to follow your counsel and to follow your lead. Second, we have prayer. And as I was putting this together, I had to stop and laugh. Sermon number one, application. Read your Bible and pray. That's so pastor, isn't it? Uh, Read your Bible and pray. That's what you should do. If you want a healthy spiritual life, if you want healthy relationships, read your Bible and pray. It's not very original. I'm not trying to be original. Jesus is modeling for us a prayer, and even in the fact that he's doing it, he's telling us something incredible. God hears you. He hears you. He knows you. He sees what you need. He's spoken to you through his word. He hears you when you speak to him. Avail yourself of his word and of prayer. And then lastly, we have community. We have each other. That story about my friend telling that story. Why was he saying that? Why was he sharing this story of his life? It was because He was looking at his own family, he was looking at his own life, and he was recognizing that there were things in him from that experience growing up as a child that had shaped who he was, that had shaped who he believed that he was in the sight of God, who he was in relationship with other people. He felt invaluable. He didn't feel valuable to to other people, like a liability. And he was confessing, and it wasn't just a, oh, pity me, but what's he doing? He's putting it out there, right? He's saying to his friends, know this about me because my default is to go to some pretty dark places because of this. It's deep inside of me. So know me, know me, chase after me, shine light on me, the light of truth. One of the ways that God delivers us from evil is he populates our lives with people who know us who know our tendencies, who can tell by the look on our face how we're doing, people who know our failings, our hopes, the tones of our voices on the other end of a phone. And we'll take 10 seconds to say, are you okay? Are you okay? That's not just that you have good friends. It's that God is giving you deliverance from evil through your friends. He gives us people who hold up the light of truth, who won't let us go through the escape hatch. He rescues us through friends who oppose us when we're wrong. Friends who will learn from us and benefit from us when we're right. People who will walk with us when we feel alone, who will chase us down when we're trying to run away, who will observe our habits, tell us what they see in us. People who will remember our tragedies, People who will celebrate our victories through vigils and through celebrations. That's what God gives for our deliverance. The core of what we're getting at here is this. God delivers us from evil by shining the light of truth 
into the deepest, darkest corners of our hearts. So it's a bold prayer. It's not for the faint of heart. It's not a prayer about sin management and behavior modifications. Search me. Rescue me. Weed it out. Raise it to the surface. Expose me. Jesus is modeling a prayer that we would be known by God. I ask this question. What do you fear if you pray this? What do you fear God will bring to the surface? Not just the behavior, but the thing driving the behavior. What are you just terrified God is going to expose? If anybody knew this about me, how could I possibly think that anybody could love me after that? What are you afraid of? What evil are you afraid to get to the root of? I want to challenge you to name it. And I want to challenge you to read what God's Word has to say about that. To pray over it. And to tell somebody. Because God is committed to our ongoing restoration. Don't waste your struggles. And don't walk through them alone. Pray with me. Father, I thank you for your word and I thank you for the way that you have given us this prayer which is not just a formula to follow but is a testimony that you listen to your people, that you know us. And we thank you for that, Lord. Father, I pray that you would would, uh, plant the seed uh, in our hearts today that we would be thinking about this, that we would be exploring uh, the areas uh, of our lives where we need rescue, that you would help us to see and that you would use the ordinary means of Scripture and prayer and relationships to uncover those things and to bring them to the surface. Father, I thank you for your word. I thank you for this church, for the people here. And Lord, we ask your grace in our lives. It's in your name, Jesus, we pray. Amen and amen. We're going to take about five minutes right now as a response time a time of responding to this. And, and, uh, and, and it's not just a time to respond, it's also a time for you to prepare uh, your offerings. Uh, if you're bringing those, the way that we do, if you notice we, we don't pass a plate at Midtown, there's a, uh, a box in the back and there should have been envelopes on your chairs or, or back there um, where you can leave your offerings there. And you can do that during, um, during this time. Uh, but I also want to Take just a couple minutes and, and invite you to pray. Maybe journal if you, if you brought a journal, if you like to, to write things down. But here's the assignment. I want you to take a few minutes to maybe identify an area in your life where you just say, you know, when he asked what I'm afraid God might bring to light, to name it. Just, just what we talked about, to name it. And then I want you to pray after you've named it. Say, God, what, what have you given me for rescue in terms of your word and prayer and people. And then the third part. So, so name it, identify the rescue that he's already provided. And then the third part, if you're up for it, is I want you to, in this time before the Lord, make a plan for this week to tell somebody and to start giving that away if you haven't. Or even if you have, to circle back around and say, remember when we talked I don't want to leave that conversation alone. I want to pick it up again. All right? And then I'll come up here in a little bit and and we'll close in a time of song.